Hello, I'm Cooper Blade, and this is The Viewed Podcast, a series of long-form interviews where I sit down with theorists and practitioners who have something interesting to say about the state, history, and or philosophy of photography. For this week's episode, I got to sit down with the American photographer Robert Lyons. He is the developer and director of the Hartford Art School International Limited Residency MFA program in photography and was here in Berlin with his students for the past couple of weeks. I met up with him uh, at his hotel in Prenzlauer Berg, where he kindly sat through a series of questions about his early body of work on the people and place of Africa and his hesitant career path within academia to his current position where he has been able to found and grow within a seemingly short period of time one of the most well-known American MFA programs in photography. The man has a wealth of knowledge and experience when it comes to photography, and I thoroughly enjoyed briefly getting to know him and his program. A special thanks to Hannes Wanderer for helping set up this meeting, and I really hope you enjoy what Robert has to say about his life and work. You're the head of an MFA program, which mm -hmm. is... Um, Interesting for me and for the podcast, I think, because if there is an audience that comes and starts listening to this, I hope it's people that are like myself who are young and coming up as photographers. Mm -hmm. And so to get, um, I also have this, uh, have been thinking about maybe I'll do an MFA program, but I'm kind of uneducated in that field. Mm -hmm. But I wanted to first start um, maybe back when you did, you did your um, BA in photography at Hampshire College. Yep. And then you went on to do your MFA at Yale University. Correct. And so I was just wondering, maybe back at that time, what was your mindset as you were finishing up your um, your bachelor and then going on to a master's? So I started my photography career in junior high, high school. I knew I wanted to be a photographer. I actually took a workshop at the age of 15 and a half with Minor White, the next oldest person is someone that you all know now, Stephen Shore. So we became friends from 1970 onward. And I went to Hampshire College because they had a pretty interesting photography and film program. And at the time I was pre-med and I thought I could pursue pre-med and uh, photography. That soon became clear I couldn't. So I pursued photography and got my bachelor's in three and a half years. And then I took a half a year off before going to graduate school. My teacher at Hampshire, I had two teachers, Elaine Mays and Jerome Liebling. And Jerome uh, pushed me to get my MFA at that time. In retrospect, I wish I had waited another four or five years. Um, I think I could have made better use of my time at Yale if I'd had a little more experience uh, under my belt. Not photographic experience, because by the time I graduated from undergrad, I'd already been a printer for Helen Levitt. And I'd worked with Minor and other people. And so I was pretty serious at the get-go. Um, but I went to Yale right after Walker Evans had died, which meant that the department was a little bit in chaos. And for my first year, I had Larry Fink. And in my second year, I had taught Papa George in his first year. And that was a pretty amazing experience to have them both. But Todd, of course, went on to become a legendary uh, he was already an excellent photographer, but a legendary kind of um, educator and, and person behind what I would say a whole movement of photography in America. So 
Um, my advice usually to younger uh, people and to students is that if you've gotten, gotten your BA, you should wait three or four years, say at 26, 27, 28, 29. 28, 29, I think, is the perfect age to go and get an MFA. Okay. But that's my, my gut feeling. Having said that, we also have accepted students who are younger into our program, which is pretty unique, and we have students as old as in their late 50s. But then, so after your MFA, you, from your resume, it seems like you kind of, you were a, a teacher's assistant during that time at Yale? Yes. I, I was really um, interested in a lot of technical things in photography at the time, analog. Okay. And I was also, during my time at Yale, I had to already make my own, my own way in the world, make a living. And I had, as I said, been a printer for Helen Levitt mm. uh, for a project which was never uh, finished. Uh, back in the 70s, there was a series of portfolios done uh, called Double Elephant was the publisher, which was Lee Freelander and another person. Um, I think, I want to say somebody named Wolf, but I don't remember his last name. He was uh, sort of the financial wizard behind it. And they were publishing portfolios of Aaron Siskin, Gary Winogrand, Lee Freelander, and they wanted to do Helen Levitt. And she was an amazing woman and photographer, and they were doing editions of 100 portfolios, I believe, and she just didn't have a space or a darkroom or the capacity to make 100 copies of a print from a negative. And so one of my teachers, Elaine Mays, had suggested that I do it and undertake it one summer between, you know, spring semester and fall semester. Yeah. Um, and of course, I was thrilled because, you know, I got to work with somebody, I, I'd only seen her work, I'd only heard about her, but I hadn't met her. And we got to be very close friends from that time forward. Um, simultaneous or part of that process was that Helen had a lot of negatives from the 30s and late 30s and early 40s that were done on bits and snippets of motion picture film, which was also 35 millimeter in size. Mm -hmm. and those early films had certain um, conservation and archival problems. And so I had to start to learn about, uh, beyond how to make a good print, the real chemistry of the materials and uh, the processes. And this led into um, many years and interest in the restoration and conservation of photographs and photographic materials. And at that time, we're talking 1978-79, I had just graduated Yale, I'd already started working on a major archive of work from the 19, late 19th century, early 20th century, and there were only a dozen of us in existence. And of the dozen, I was the only one who came from photography. Everybody else came from um, printmaking or papermaking or art restoration. So it was a kind of vital and exciting period, and it was also something that most people weren't doing, so I took it up. And this was on your own, You've, you decided yeah. to do this? And... Yeah, I decided to do that on my own after graduate school, so even though I'd been a TA in graduate school, and then I went on to be a um, faculty member at the Hartford Art School, I replaced Robert Cumming when he would go on leave, 
I think that's around 83, 84. And I did a few gigs like that at the University of Washington. I spent a semester. Teaching was not uh, at the forefront of my thinking. Uh, I wanted to make my images. I also wanted to handle the real materials. So by doing conservation and restoration, you know, I often had the original mountain rays. John Sarkowski handed me original aches. I mean, I had amazing material in my hands. And sometimes for six months or a year or 18 months, because if they needed a treatment and we, at that time, we didn't know what, how to do it necessarily. Um, you know, it was a problem solving and it, meant that you know you could have your studio and you'd have against the wall on the workbench you'd have you know some of the greatest photographs from the history of photography and you had this dialogue with them firsthand you know late into the night early in the morning uh 24/7 it was it was a great experience and do you still do that is that something that you're still I don't do it any longer I when I first came to Berlin I was still working um I came back to it. There's a very well-known gallerist here, Rudy Kicken of Kicken Gallery, who knew me from those days when I was doing it in uh, New York and Boston. And he knew I was here and I needed work. And so I did some work around 2002 to 2005. But I didn't keep up. Conservation is something that's changed. I didn't keep up with it. Um, and also one ages and you know your eyes or your hand isn't quite as steady so it's it's not always for everyone um, but I did work on some amazing pieces uh, for Rudy while yeah. I was here yeah cool. and then so and then at the same time you're doing your own work yes your own photographic work mm -hmm. which was largely centered on the continent of Africa mm -hmm. and so I'm wondering I saw something in your uh, in your interview with Jörg Kohlberg mm -hmm. that you had said that it was because you had gone there with your father and, and it started in Egypt. And I'm just wondering, because there's this problem which I see in your work, I see you're very um, conscious of, this kind of idea of a photographer going to Africa mm -hmm. and being the eyes for other people. Mm -hmm. And I'm so I'm, I'm wondering how that kind of came about question. in your work. Uh, so as a child, I grew up in Boston, and I was taken to the Boston Museum of Fine Arts most weekends to the Egyptology um, section of the museum. My dad was a medical doctor, but an amateur archaeologist. And at an early age, I was on archaeological digs in the Middle East. And so I had this kind of questioning about who are these people who I'm looking at the sarcophagi and other things, and I was very interested in who are the real people in these places. And of course, with my understanding of photographic history from the 19th century, you know, the Grand Tour was something that many Europeans went on to the Far East, uh, um, both the Middle East and the Far East, and the way they brought back their memories of that was photographic. So from the early history of the medium, it's always been one where people went off to bring back uh, something about the place and you know it plays with this idea that the photograph is both at once factual and total fiction and I like that and that's how it had influenced me in my own work I found that um, at that point I was really had a lot of wanderlust and I wanted to go and explore these places 
And what better way to do it than with a camera? It sort of gave you a license to go where you shouldn't go. And you, at this time, you said like uh, while you were doing your MFA, you were having to work and mm -hmm. pay your way through it. So how, because I find your career choice is, is one of that a photographer coming up in school can, can take, you know, there's this idea that you can go do, try and work the editorial mm -hmm. circuit. You could become a commercial photographer and then do your art or your personal projects on the side, or you can kind of become this professor and then do your work on the side. Was this conscious? Is this really the way you see your your career path? Or uh... Well, I didn't see it that way at that time. Um, a lot of my colleagues became teachers and a number of them became, uh, I, I don't, I don't want to say commercial photographers, they, they were editorial photographers. So they were artists first, and in order to make a living, they did editorial work like P.L. de Corsia. Um, Mary Fry, who was also in our class at Yale, decided to become a teacher right out of school. So everybody made different choices. They were all equally good. For me, um, I think teaching was, was interesting, but it wasn't the thing I wanted at the time. I wanted to experience more. And... Uh, I didn't really think I had much to say to anyone anyhow, other than by the making of the work and having these experiences of meeting amazing people along the way, um, outside of photography, but the people who I met uh, in all these places I went. So that was more interesting. And then did you, because I was, uh, the book, The Other Africa, or what? what Another was, Africa. Another Africa. It was... How did you, did you just go to places and, and take your film in your bag and you, and you explored? Did you have contacts there? Um, okay, that's a good question. So I had done a book called Egyptian Time, mm -hmm. and I have this great affinity for Egypt, uh, and I still have it. And while working there, I, I thought my work or whatever I was trying to do was at a standstill. It was finished. And I started to want to go to other parts of Africa. And I started uh, first going down to Sudan. I traveled down the Nile. Um, and once there, I saw some pretty interesting Sudanese mud architecture. So then I came back and I um, did some research and found that a lot of uh, Sudanese mud ar architecture was in Mali, which was West Africa. At one time, it was called French West Sudan. So this is 1991, and I've already been to Egypt six or seven times prior to that. And so, yes, I just uh, made a bunch of money, and I sublet my flat, and I got on a plane and went to Mali hmm. with a lot of film yeah. and a couple of cameras. And I rode local transport, buses, ta shared taxis, whatever I had to do to move around. And I moved around often as the only foreigner in a spot because I was interested in being in places that were out of the way and not so touristic. Um, and having some kind of what I thought was a authentic experience with the people, but maybe it wasn't. I'd, you know, sometimes we uh, create that ourselves or the mythology of that. But I had great experiences there, and um, I think I went back to Mali maybe nine or 
10 times over five years. And then I, from Mali, I started to, I also went to Burkina Faso. I heard there's a big film festival in Ouagadougou. So I went, you know, by buses and, and again, shared taxis and got as far as uh, Ouagadougou where I was quite ill. Um, I, I con contracted malaria, a really bad case of malaria that put me in the hospital um, and a physician, the only English speaking physician in Ouagadougou at the time was from uh, Nigeria and Dr. Bumba, he saved my life, literally. And uh, we became friends and, and so, you know, these experiences shape you and, um, you know, you find out things about yourself and you also find out about things about uh, humankind. So it was pretty interesting. Sometimes the ignorance is bliss. <laughs> I just, I found the body of work uh, impressive and, um, and bold, but also sub subdued in a way. Mm -hmm. and, and, and were all these things going through your mind that you wanted to have this uh, different kind of an American view of, of Africa and then bring that back and then produce that as a book? Or how did that then? Well, back in that time, we didn't think in terms of projects quite the same way as we do today. Okay, that's interesting. And so when I was going there, uh, I didn't have in my, my mind necessarily that it was a book. I hoped that. And I didn't have a sort of mapped out plan. I mean, I had some things written on a list. You know, I wanted to go to Timbuktu, and I did. Timbuktu back in 1991 was politicized. It's not just recently since there's been um, uh, a strong uh, Muslim uh, presence there. I mean, it was always Muslim, but it, there's been a Muslim uh, orthodoxy that, you know, uh, actually it's probably they're not, I shouldn't say this, Islam is a really amazing religion, and a lot of people hijack it like they do all religions, and they say that they're, you know, fundamentalists. But at any rate, there were fundamentalists back then, and 1991, of course, was when the U.S. went into uh, the first Iraq war. Mm -hmm. So I was happened to be in Timbuktu at that time as the only American um, <laughs> with a couple of European people I met along the way. And it was a very interesting period because you, you got a lot of... You have to reflect on a lot of harassment. You have to defend uh, your, your country, even if you don't have to defend it, but you're called to into account to talk about those things. And there were a lot of great conversations that took place. Um, and you learn a lot. You learn about how we, as an American, uh, we have a specific view, and it's really uh, where it's kind of a privilege that we have. And a lot of the world doesn't have that. So you've, you form different ideas. And the work is quiet. Yeah. You're right. The work is quiet because I think that's, uh, there. I did always have the, in my mind, the one thing that was there was I found Africa to be an amazing continent. And my experiences were one of... Um, camaraderie and friendship and I was really tired of seeing it depicted in just famine there's a an amazing book or war or chaos called fantastic invasion by Patrick Marnheim he is a British writer and that was a book I read while traveling around the Sudan in 19 
1989. And it's a book that talks about uh, sort of the NGOs and, and foreign aid and how you know, things were done for photo opportunities and how people wanted to keep depicting this place like it was primitive, and, and it's not. It's not primitive at all. It's, it's highly uh, organized. It's highly intellectual in a different way than maybe the United States or Europe, but we should be respectful of that and try to find out what it is about these rituals and cultures that are so intriguing, and actually we descend from that. It's not vice versa. And so I wanted to show up on Africa that was really, I, I mean, I wasn't showing cell phones at the time or the new technology, but an Africa that was somehow for Africans that was to celebrate how amazing the place was. And of course, I was very naive because there were so many African photographers who were working, and this was also my chance to be educated by them and their work. Mm. Uh, we have a very false sense, especially in the United States, that it's only the Westerners who go there and show it. But you know, long before I ever went there, there were so many great African photographers dealing with the issues they had to deal with yeah. that that was really interesting for me. Are there any names of, or, or, or books uh, that well, you can think of? Well, Seidu Kaita, who I went to see. There were people at the National Museum. My mind is a little groggy today. There was, a, there was an artist. He, he was the director of the National Museum in Mali, and I'd seen his work. Um, he made amazing assemblages that referred to shamanism and the Dogon people in Mali. Um, there was a magazine called Revue Noir, out of Paris, and it was a big oversized magazine. And I used to get that. I would find it either on my travels throughout Paris, in and out of West Africa, or I would order it. And I was listening to you know a lot of African music. So you start to collect the material. Um, of course, David Goldblatt in South Africa was a huge influence on me um, because I knew you know he's a white African photographer. He's South African, as is Peter Hugo and others. So there are both black and white photographers in Africa, and I was really interested in all of them. And then you, at this time, so you said you went four or five times to Egypt, or and then nine times. Uh, I went a lot more to Egypt, but I'd already been there four or five yeah. or six times. Yeah. So how are you um, forming your career at this point? Is, is, is it, oh, that's a good question. You know, like, because I see a lot of... Um, friends thinking about the future and they're thinking about you know yeah I, I would love to hear like how someone who did this who could do these projects and okay and so at that time um i was trying to get editorial work and i did work for the new york times sometimes for vogue sometimes for travel and leisure mm. and i was going i went on my own nickel usually i i paid my own way yeah to get to places that i wanted to be but for example, Egyptian Time, which is a book that precedes another Africa, that's a really funny story because what I did was I, I went to, I'd been in Egypt often, and I picked up a copy of Vanity Fair to read on the airplane, and I saw Naguib Mahfouz at the Alibaba Cafe. So, you know, I knew Mahfouz's writing, I was really interested in it, and I figured out where the Alibaba Cafe was. It's a hole in the wall in Tahrir Square. And I went there every day for two weeks to try to catch a glimpse of Mahfouz. And then finally I saw him walking and I waited 
day and the next day and the next day. And finally, I had the courage to speak to him with a young street kid who was working with me. Um, and I asked him, you know, if I could do his portrait. So I arranged for this, and it, you know, over a couple of months, because I was going to Sudan and coming back, I did these portraits of Mafus thinking, I'm going to sell one to his publisher because they don't have his picture on any of his book jackets. That was my idea. So I get back to the US and I send a note, would you be interested in some portraits of Naguib Mahfouz? And at that time, I did these promotional pieces that were just my own personal work. And they had my letterhead and my, you know, it, it was how we did it in 1990. And I, they had, it had text and a photograph, and it was a type C print and went through the machine. So I send six or seven of them to his editor at Doubleday, thinking, well, maybe they'll pay me and I, I can go back again and photograph. I'll, I'll get enough money to buy a ticket. That's how it worked. Yeah. It was really hand of mouth. And plus, I had lots of credit cards. I applied for every credit card, and I moved the money as often as possible. So. One day I get a call, and um, his editor was Jacqueline Onassis. And I thought my friends were making a joke. And I was in my space in Seattle, mm. and someone says, is this Robert Lyons? I say, yeah. And they said, this is Jacqueline Onassis. And I'm thinking, right, <laughs> right, she's going to call me. And she said, you know, um, we're not much interested in a portrait of Nagi Mahfouz, but I really like your work. Um, and we'd like to speak to you about that. And when I finally um, hit my head enough against the wall and realized it was true, I booked a plane, a plane ride to New York from Seattle the following week to meet with her, show her some of the prints I had, because by then I had a huge box of prints of Egypt, and my idea for what I wanted to do. And I'd already discussed with Mafus, would he write something for me? And he had done a lot of film scripts, so he was, used, he was a great, not only an amazing writer, but great visually. So when they said, well, if he's going to give you the story and you're going to do the work, we want to do the book kind of thing, it, it all sounds so funny now, but it, it really happened like that. Um, three weeks later, I got on a plane to go to Cairo and spend time with him, and I had a box of 150 prints under my arm. And we spent a day looking at photographs, and he talked to me about what he liked, what he didn't like, and ba ba ba. And I said, so you, you write me an introduction. And he looked at me, and he gave me a slap on the face. And he said, no, I won't write you an introduction, because then I would have to write everyone that asks me. But I have something. And so a week later, he handed me a story in Arabic that had never been published. And he said, this is for your book. It's for your photographs. And he had synthesized what the work was about, gave me the story, and I said, wow, great, except I can't read any Arabic. I didn't know what it was. Um, and I had a friend who helped me find a translator, and then it turned out to be a perfect um, piece. And so that's how it all often worked, you know, by happenstance, because I was already motivated to be in these places. And another Africa... Um, I had already begun work in Africa by the time the Egypt book was coming out, and I knew that I wanted to work with an African writer, and I had this idea, Chinua Chebe, and he and I met uh, at Bard College, and I showed him a lot of pictures, and he had just 
come back from almost being dead from an accident. And he said, well, I can't work very quickly, but I really like your work. There was one key image in that book that brought him over to my side of things. And that was the beginning of a five-year you know, sort of collaboration back and forth where I was still traveling to Africa photographing and then seeing him every year to show him work and, you know, so he could think about what he was going to write. Yeah, it's very organic how it comes about. Yeah, and it's not like you're just trying to do something to to, to get fame or to... It, it seems like it's there, there's an idea that you're you're There's an idea pursuing. You, want, you want to pursue. And, I mean, that that's a different time already. The Egypt book was done in 7,000 copies. Okay. And the, Another Africa, w- that book was printed 17,500 copies, of which in the first year, 10,000 were sold. And then, you know, the rest are remaindered forever. Yeah. It, it's a really different time, and, and now is a different time. And we, I, I can't speak for other people, but the people amongst my group, we did our projects. We never thought about fame or glory or getting anything. It was more how could we accomplish the work we wanted to do. Is that something you've seen that's changed in 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 yes in your students or in people in general and maybe well the, I think it's changed. There's a kind of strategy that people have now, and they they want to tick off what's what's. Uh, Success. So, I mean, there are different ways that works. Um, I happen to be fortunate, and I got to interact with really incredible people because I think I was just persistent, and you could approach people. And, it, you know, you didn't really try to put your name next to theirs. They, they were the great people. You were just doing your work. I think that's changed. Now a lot of people try to identify, and, and galleries write press releases like that. You know, this work it identifies it, and they give you the names of five of the most iconic people in photography in the text, and all of a sudden, as a reader, you start to put it together. Whether the work fits or not is irrelevant. Yeah. That's a technique. And, uh, you know, for me, it's not so appealing. I mean, one can do it, I suppose, but, um, you know, it's, it's not really the way to do it. And the people that I really admire in the medium, I mean, Mitch Epstein is a close, was a close friend of mine since high school. Mm-hmm. And I think he had a huge influence um, back then. And, and, you know, color was new. I mean, I went to graduate school doing black and white, so we're talking about seven, 1977, 78 was my first year. Um, and we had a workshop, a five-day workshop to learn how to color print and talk about color photography. It was taught by a guy you probably know by the name of Joel Meyerwitz, mm-hmm. young guy at the time, <laughs> shooting 8 by 10 taking us in the darkroom, showing us how to make prints, which was way more complicated than with the machines that were around in the 1990s. Um, It was a different time, and we were really excited. And we were all trying to figure out how to do it better, a little more, with a little more finesse, and we were helping each other. And I mean, PL was always doing color. Um, And, you know, there were all these things we were all trying, and Mitch was shooting not only all that Kodachrome work, but then we all switched to medium format color negative film. And, you know, there was this camera made called the Siciliano, which 
was made by a guy named Tom Roma. And, you know, and then another guy in Boston made a camera instead of out of a wood body medium format, he made it out of aluminum and that was called the palm press. And, you know, there were all these things and we were, everything went ba 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 And it was exciting. Yeah. And I think, and it was face to face. And I think, so what's happened now is it's changed a bit. And people can have a brief amount of exposure on the internet. By brief, I mean the, you know, how long, it doesn't last long. Once you put something on the net, it's a sensation for a week, maybe, or whatever, maybe it's three, two months, and then it's over. Um, and it does get out to a lot of people. I mean, it's an amazing tool. But, um, you know, you, you can kind of ride that time and time and time again and build a career based on that, too. Yeah. I guess, yeah. But there's there's this, I mean, to me it seems like there's this in, in you're trying to promote yourself over... <clears throat> in the way that some people promote themselves, it takes away from the work in a way, even though, mm-hmm. you know, because it, it, it has something to, to, say, to say about the work. Well, you know, I was in someone's darkroom a year or two ago in the Northwest, and it, it was a saying that I never forgot. A photograph is never taken, it's always given. I thought that was a really apt quote, because, I mean, you make opportunity for yourself to be receptive in the kind of photography that I'm interested in, and there are other kinds, so I can only speak for this one, where you make yourself available. And I think if you do that and you, and you continue to do it over a period of time, a long period of time, the work will stand on its own and, and people will know it. And this rush to uh, fame, like you say, you know, there, there are people that have certain steps and they follow it and I guess it gets them known for a while and then it kind of dissipates. Because being a creative artist is about the peaks and the valleys. And the valleys you still have to go through no matter what. And you have to learn that that's cyclical and that you have to be able to bring yourself through that because nobody else is going to bring you through it. I mean, we're, we're on our own journey, each of us, and we have to find ways that, you know, it resonates and ways to allow us to fail. You have to be willing to fail as an artist and continually fail and have success. It's, it's nice. It's both. (laughs) And so when did you finally, um, accept the title of professor or, uh, because it seems like you were maybe avoiding that for a while. And yeah, then... I still am. <laughs> I, my title is director of the MFA program. Okay. It's not really professor, <laughs> but that's a sore point. <laughs> um, I had to move back from Germany to the United States. Prior to that, I was teaching here, um, pri- primarily at the Ostkreuzschule, and I have to thank Vanna uh, Mala and Thomas Sandberg for giving me the opportunity to bring a class to, to the school. And they didn't know me, and they were great colleagues and continue to be great colleagues. I have only the highest respect, and I'm very close with Udamala, who I adore teaching with, because we have sometimes the same opinion and sometimes very different opinions, but we, we're really good in the classroom. So it was a way to make money, but and make a living and, and, and try to pass on 
some of the things that had been opportunities for me, because there were key people in my life. Like I said, Helen Levitt was a key person, and I, you know, uh, Jerome Liebling, and, but Todd Papa George and others, Elaine Mays. I moved back to the United States to take care of an ailing parent. Something happened, and the Hartford Art School asked me to take a class, and I met a dean there, and he said, well, what's your dream? If you could have your dream, what would you do? Would you consider something like this? And I said, wow, yes. And then I spent about, I don't know, 12 to 18 months developing the program on my own time, and I was actually on a fellowship at McDowell when I got a call saying that the Academic Senate and Powers to Be had passed the program and we could start the following year. Okay. So that was late 2009. They wanted to start in 2011, and I said, oh, let's start right now, 2010. So we did. And, and that, you know, by that time, I'd already, I'd already had an idea who I wanted to teach. Uh, I had reached out to people. They'd said, yes. They said, what is this? I said, I don't know what it is. And, I mean, I couldn't even describe it. Never mind pay. And, you know, people like York Kohlberg, who's a close friend of mine, Alex Soth, uh, Doug Dubois, who I'd known forever, we had worked together back in the 80s. Um, all these people, Mary Fry, uh, they all said yes. And it was an experiment, and it worked. So then that leads me into a question about MFA programs in photography. There don't seem to be a ton of them, uh, maybe in the United States, uh, mm-hmm. to say that. And so what should one think about when one is looking uh, for such a program? Or Well, I think first and foremost, you have to think about why do you want a master's degree. Yeah. And in the United States, if you want to teach, it's pretty much guaranteed you need to have a terminal degree, which is the master's degree in photography. In Europe, that's not the case. It, if you're a practitioner, you can often become a professor. Um, I have to say that honestly, some of the best practitioners don't make the best teachers, and some of the best teachers are not the best, you know, star stars in the field of photography. So it, it it's it's different, you know. You you want to have a combination, but um, in the United States, the real choice is between a full time full residency program. Yeah. or a full-time low-residency program. And in that category, full-time low-residency, which is what Hartford is, yeah. that MFA is unique for a lot of different reasons, that program. First, it is a photographic program. It's not interdisciplinary. So we don't have faculty to teach uh, other forms of art. We don't have even video in it. I'm not opposed to it. We just don't have that. And there are many pro- programs that do. So in order to differentiate it, it stayed really photographic. Mm-hmm. Second, it's the only program that I know of where you're required to have a final book dummy as well as an exhibition to graduate. So we were the first to do that in the United States. There might be other programs now, but that was seven years ago. And that was important because I saw what was happening. You know, the technology, digital technology, became so um, good that one would want to make books if you could. 
Why not? Because it, we always wanted to do stories with photographs and magazine work, and all that's gone. I mean, there isn't any of that any longer, editorial work, really. So self-publishing became something else, and it was never a dirty word. I, I think people, people also think they just discovered self-publishing, which I always find interesting, because the best person in self-publishing was Lee Freelander and is. He started back in the 70s. Hmm. Haywire Press is Lee Freelander and he has been consistent. The work is great. The books have been innovative. It's just amazing. And, you know, why wouldn't you do it if you could and, and make it profitable? Yeah. I don't know if I'm answering your question, but um, to come back, I think an MFA can be a very useful experience if you're ready for it. Mm. And if the low residency allows you to stay living where you live and come together a few times a year face to face, and in our program, in between times, we use Skype. Okay. The reason I wanted that was when I had to go to graduate school, I didn't really want to move from where I was living to New Haven to go to graduate school, because what was I going to photograph there? I was already working on other things. Yeah. So if you're in Montana and you want to photograph, why do you want to move to New Haven where you, at best, could go to Montana maybe once a semester to photograph? The idea is to learn how to have a, a continual practice weekly yeah. or monthly. Yeah. Um, or what if you live in a foreign country and you want to get an MFA in the United States? You've got to have to move everything to go there? It seems a little in this day and age, absurd, because photography and photographers have always traveled to do their work. Mm -hmm. So if somebody's living in Denmark or in Germany, or we've had Brazil, uh, why not allow them to stay living there and come together in a group three or four times a year in order to have great exchange and thinking and ideas and to continue in projects in their home territory? Interesting. So that how long is the program? How many times do you do the students come in? Uh, so the the program is two and a half years. It's three summers, two full years. Mm. The first summer, every summer they come to Hartford. Mm. In the fall, in their first year, they're in Hartford and New York City. And in the second year, they've been either in San Francisco or Portland, Oregon. Mm. Uh, in the spring, we've been in Berlin up until now and continue to, uh, the, the cohorts come to Berlin. So if you're a European, you don't come back to the United States, you come to Berlin, which is an art capital of Europe, I think. Yeah. Um, and so it's usually two weeks at a time. It's very intense uh, on every level, emotional, you know, uh, creative, uh, people are challenged, people's tempers get short all kinds of things, it's, and we bring in a lot of guest people for each of the sessions, the best from each area. Are, do you know much about other MFA programs uh, besides the Yale one that you took part of and the, the one in Hartford? Like what other, I mean, are there other ones that you would Well, there are many. there are many good into? programs. You, you know, uh, Syracuse has a program, RISD has a program, Mass Art in Boston has a program. These are all full-time, full-residency yeah. programs. Bard, I think, has a summer program that is interdisciplinary. Um, so, again, I think inter interdisciplinary is really useful and helpful. I, I mean, I would like to bring in other artists to do critiques, for example. But 
there seem to be enough good programs like that that I don't feel it's my mandate to have to pursue that. Yeah. Um, and also, you know, it's a little like if you drink whiskey. So if you drink a really good single malt whiskey, do you want to put an ice cube in it? And if you do put an ice cube in it, it waters it down. And I think that happens sometimes with some interdisciplinary programs. And I know I'll catch a lot of heat for this, but, you know, it's true. Photography has certain unique qualities, and I would like to continue exploring those. And I would like to see some of those expanded. I'd like, I, you know, I like when people challenge it and expand it. But also challenging those unique qualities makes those of us who are photographers that much sharper about how we speak about the work. One last question sure. about your, what do you work on now as a photographer? Or are you? And It's uh, a good question. <laughs> so <clears throat> I have two answers. Yeah. The short answer is that I can give you a list of the graduates from the last five years of the Hartford Art School, and that's my work. Yeah. Um, there are very successful people like uh, Brian Scoopmott and Lucy Helton and... Um, there are so many, Sebastian Collette, Chikara Umahara. Uh, I'm going to forget names, so I apologize. Dorite Dice here. Um, and that's one part of my work, obviously. The other part is that I'm still a creative artist, and I have been working on a project of the border between the United States and Canada, which is the longest contigu contiguous border in the world, supposedly an open border. Uh, and one that we have very little uh, discussion about in relation to the southern border with Mexico. Mm. And I'm really interested in this kind of idea of a porous border that isn't porous because it's highly elect electronically surveillanced, both with motion detectors and cameras and all that stuff. Um, at the same time, there must be a reason why the United States feels less... Uh, need to ever have a discussion about building a wall in the northern border. And that pertains to this whole idea of um, nation states. And, you know, this is going on especially in Europe with all of the refugees you have coming. Um, this whole idea of, you know, what is a border? What is a national border? Do we really have borders in the age of the internet? Is it really different when you look over the border? I mean, when I look from the state of Washington to British Columbia, there's almost no difference in the landscape. Yeah. Um, there's a difference in the people who inhabit the landscape on both sides, but uh, there's also a difference in the economics. Uh, if you look in British Columbia, once you go over the border, the cost of the same space is eight or ten times the cost of Washington State, which I know you're from. So it's that interests me. Um, and what I really want to do is talk about it in a way that doesn't draw attention to some of the obvious questions, but gives you something visually to look at while there's also text and questions to ponder to talk about in the end, one's identity, both cultural and, 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 and societal identity, who we are as Americans, who are they as Canadians, are we the same? Because we're not. We are different. Canadians are very proud, and they will tell you that they're different than the United States citizens. And I think they have different policies, many of which are much better from my point of view. But um, 
so I'm interested in how the photographs could spark the discussion. And they should be have a certain inherent beauty because that draws people in. And when you draw people in, as I tried to do with the work in Rwanda, you can start to have a different dialogue. Because if, if people already know what the dialogue's going to be, sometimes they won't enter. But if you kind of equalize it all, um, you allow people to enter at different points and for different reasons. So that's what I'm working on right now. There is a new project that I hope will be published in early 2017. And do you work analog still? Do you work... Do you <laughs> yes, work, I do. Yeah, like because it, yeah. the way you talk about photography is similar to the way... I, Stephen Shore was just here to give a lecture down mm -hmm. at CO Berlin, and the way he talked about photography was this kind of, you know, I can tell that you've spent a lot of time comparing negatives or, you know, like figuring out what, like the... the really the deep elements of how photography works. Well, the thing is that the tool is the tool. So, I mean, I think Stephen, he must have said something about working in digital yeah, now. He, yeah. and, but, but, I mean, my output is often digital, meaning the prints, but my capture is still on film. Mm. I prefer it, uh, although I'm, I'm experimenting with digital, I've, you know, it's a dance back and forth. But... You know, I'm not very adept. My students would tell you this. I'm not so adept at Photoshop, for example, but I know exactly what I want a print to look like. And I can actually tell an assistant, yes, we need to do this filter. We need to try sharpening in the high pass, ba 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 ba. And you need to make these layers here because we need to change the toe of the curve. That I all understand photographically. And Photoshop is just the same as the darkroom was, but actually it's more refined. Um, in the end, it's ink on paper. It's not a uh, you know developed silver gelatin print. So there's a difference in the look. It allows for different things, and I think they're equally valid. I I don't have. I mean, I would capture it if there was a camera that I really liked that was digital, that was fast, that didn't have so many buttons and menus that I had to every time you hit a button you had to go. Is it all set? I would probably buy it, but I haven't found that camera yet. I'm looking. Yeah. Um, but you know, a mechanical camera, I use a, a six by seven camera, it doesn't have a light meter, has no batteries. I'm not, I, I don't have to depend on certain things. And for what I'm doing, it's, it's second nature. That's what works for me. But I think any, either way it could work. No, it's just this, um, this, you talk like you know exactly like you said you know exactly what you want a print to look like mm -hmm. and it's this kind of i can it's hard for me to put it into words but that you know it was like when stephen shore talked about these landscapes that he had done and then he you know it's this typical thing he does he tells you to like look at the you know at the front of the land or the this kind of foreground and then work your way to the background and mm -hmm. oh doesn't your eye feel like it's uh, actually changing focus but it's really not because it's on a 2d dimensional mm -hmm. image and uh i just i, I love the, and i think we don't talk about photography in that way where there's it's kind of like these phenomena you know that yes. we go through and uh well for a lot of people don't understand that and you know uh, there's an excellent exhibition right now in berlin called nature by michael schmidt mm. which is at nordenhaka gallery uh, curated i believe by thomas Wesky, who's one of the great people in photography today and their prints are small and if you look 
you, you see exactly what you're talking about. On the bottom edge of each of the photographs is kind of out of focus. So Schmidt is really directing your looking into, peering into. And this goes back to a whole discussion in the 80s of Sarkowski mirrors and windows. And photographs can be mirrors or windows. I mean, there's such a dialogue that we were all trained in, and I think it still affects us. And it's still there in photography. But digital also allows for a kind of visual stacking so that you can make a picture where everything is in focus because you've taken 20 negatives and put it together in a single print. Mm -hmm. And foreground and background, everything is equally sharp. That's a democratic image. Maybe that's what the democratic forest really would be if, if Eggleston decided he wanted to use that technique. And I'll say one thing, Eggleston was a master of technique. Mm -hmm. If you've seen his black and white prints, five by seven, this book, I mean, this guy really, I mean, he knew it. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I mean, I think you, you, you know, you find out what the tools are that you need. Um, but I'm working with my my vocabulary that I learned yeah. and and it grows but you never leave it you know you don't throw out what you learned you kind of take it with you and I I think it can also hold one back I mean at times it does I'm sure even I'm, I know it has for me at times there are things I don't want to give up film is one of them but you know inevitably I'll have to give it up yeah okay uh one last question if there were Th three books f about photography or not about photography, um, what would you recommend or three that come to your mind? Or? Invisible Cities by Italo Calvino is a really important book to read. Uh -huh. um, one other book I'm going to go for, is that okay? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but Beautiful by Jeff Dyer. It's the idea of legendary jazz musicians uh, traveling in Europe and the preface is about photography it's amazing okay. it's only a page and a half um, of course Walker Evans book on America um, and I think I'm gonna pull from deep um, I think it would be really important to look at Harry Callahan's work and the book I like the most is called Harry Callahan photographs El Muccello, 1964. It's a very hard book to get, but I think Harry Callahan, he had one of the strongest influences upon me and continues. Of course, I mean, it's really hard. You know, if you ask me tomorrow, yeah, I'll that's tell you great. something else. No, it's great. <laughs> Perfect. Thank you. Good. I would like to thank Robert for coming on to the podcast. He kindly took time out of a very busy schedule to sit down with me, uh, which, I, which I'm very grateful for. If you want to see some of his work, I would recommend getting your hands on one of his books, Egyptian Time, Another Africa, or Intimate Enemy. You can find a list of these books as well as some of uh, his other photographs on his website, www.robertlyonsphoto.com. Uh, the website for the MFA program is www.hartfordphotomfa.org. That's hartfordphotomfa.org, where you can read about the program, their faculty, and keep up on what some of the current students are doing. 
If you have a comment about the podcast, you can reach out to me by sending an email to cooper at cooperblade.com. Follow me on Twitter at cooperandblade uh, or subscribe to the show on iTunes so that each week the episode downloads automatically to your computer, phone, or tablet. Uh, You can also leave a comment or a uh, review there. Anything would be appreciated. Otherwise, come back to the podcast page, www.cooperblade.com slash viewed for upcoming episodes. The intro outro music is the song Freeway by the artist Kurt Vile off his album Constant Hitmaker and was used under a Creative Commons license. And thanks as always to the BTK University of Art and Design for guidance and technical support. I got to meet a couple people from the uh, Hartford MFA program who actually have been listening to the podcast, and I just wanted to say thank you uh, to those of you uh, who I talked to at the exhibition, as well as to anyone who's listening to this. I very much appreciate it, and uh, I hope that we can keep doing this into the future. So until next week, I'm Cooper Blade. Thanks for listening.